the borough reeves and constables of manchester and salford hereby caution all the inhabitants to close their houses shops and warehouses and to keep themselves and all persons under their control within doors otherwise their lives will be in danger carts and all other carriages must be immediately removed from the streets and public roads by midday on the morning of the seventeenth of august this placard had been posted around the centre of manchester ordering the inhabitants to stay indoors the warning was in effect redundant when samuel bamford visited a manchester public house he found the radicals angry but disorganised thomas redford who as before stated had been wounded was going to manchester the following morning to visit his old mother and i chose to go with him at the house of an acquaintance of his where we first called we found means to procure a disguise for me as i was desirous to move about without exciting particular notice my hat was accordingly changed for an old slouched felt my lapel coat for an ancient-looking long-waisted surtout with broad metal buttons a handkerchief was tied over my mouth a stick was in my hand and a wig concealed my hair and so attired i walked slowly forth a tall pale and feeble elderly man indifferent health had then rendered me pale i passed many persons some of the police who in my ordinary dress would have known me but they all seemed quite engaged and in a hurry and so confident in my disguise i made my observations at leisure all seemed in a state of confusion the streets were patrolled by military police and special constables the shops were closed and silent the warehouses were shut up and padlocked the exchange was deserted the artillery was ready and it was reported that thousands of pikemen were on the way to manchester from oldham middleton and other surrounding districts i entered public houses called for my squib of cordial and listened saying nothing i overheard the groups in the streets and the general opinion was that the authorities were stunned and at a loss how to proceed that many of the wealthy class blamed them as well for the severity with which they had acted as for the jeopardy in which they had placed the lives and property of the townspeople whilst all the working population were athirst for revenge and only awaited the coming of the country folks to attempt a sweeping havoc some proposals which i heard assented to filled me with horror the immolation of a selected number of the guilty ones might have been discussed before god and man but what these men sought would not do and i retired and put off my dress more thoughtful than when i took it up i found redford's mother bathing his wound with warm milk and water and to please her he said it was easier it was a clean gash of about six inches in length and quite through the shoulder blade she yearned and wept afresh when she saw the severed bone gaping in the wound she asked who did it and tom mentioned a person he said he knew him well and she sobbing said she also knew him and his father and mother before him and she prayed god not to visit that sin on the head of him who did it but to change his heart and bring him to repentance that prayer had well nigh touched my heart also but tom rapped out one of another sort to which i incontinently as may be supposed added my amen the wound having been linted and bound with sticking plaster tom put on his clothes 
the slash in his coat having been sewed, and the blood sponged off by a young woman. His mother then, with many prayers and much good advice, resigned him, as she said, to the guidance of God through a wild and weary world. We called at Smedley Cottage, but nothing had been heard of the prisoners since the day preceding. On arriving at the end of the lane before descending past Smedley Hall, we met two men with a covered basket, and they asked us to go with them. They both knew me, and one of them I knew well. He was a staunch radical, and an influential one, as I supposed. His name was Chadwick, and he was a shawl-weaver, latterly of Stockport. They'd got a good lump of a nice leg of roasted veal, and some ham to match it, and were going to the temple bowling green to meet some friends, and to discuss their grievances and their viands over a bottle or two of porter. They had taken the meat from a public dinner-table in George Lee Street the day before. The feast had been provided by the reformers for the evening's solacement. After the catastrophe, anything, it would seem, was law that could be done, and a band of hungry constables and police hastened to seize the meat. But the reformers, hearing of their intention, removed some of the best joints, and left them to devour the remainder, which they did on the spot, and never paid for it. Such was the account these friends gave of their lunch, and their motive for coming out of town. We went with them, and met some half-dozen others, and a discussion ensued on the state of affairs, and the course that should be taken by the reformers. At last it was agreed to hold a larger meeting the day following, on the Tandle Hills, and with mutual pledges to be punctual, we separated. I found, when I got home, that there had been a general ferment in the town. Many of the young men had been preparing arms, and seeking out articles to convert into arms. Some had been grinding scythes, others old hatchets, others screwdrivers, rusty swords, pikels and mop-nails. Anything which could be made to cut or stab was pronounced fit for service but no plan was defined, nothing was arranged, and the arms were afterwards reserved for any event that might occur. The day following, I attended on the hills with a trusty friend. Notices had been sent to Oldham, Rochdale, Bury, and some other places, but at the time appointed, no one appeared. We waited for hours until the afternoon waned, but no one came, and then we went down to Royton, to ascertain the disposition of the reformers of that place. Some had been severely wounded, but most of the people were carousing, and there did not appear to be any disposition to retaliate the outrage which we had suffered by force of arms. I called on William Fitton, but he gave no encouragement to such an idea. I went to John Kay in Royley Lane, but he was, as usual, imperturbably placid. He was one of the least impassioned men I ever knew. After introducing the cause of my visit, I asked his opinion, and in order to obtain it frankly, I spoke the more so. If the people were ever to rise and smite their enemies, was not that the time? Was every enormity to be endured, and this after all? Were we still to lie down like whipped hounds, whom nothing could arouse to resistance? Were there not times and seasons and circumstances under which the common rules of wisdom became folly, prudence became cowardice, and submission became criminal, and was not the present one of those times and seasons? It was astonishing that men could eat and sleep, 
that the voice of their brother's blood crying from the ground did not make them miserable. "'It does make them miserable,' said this philosopher, "'for he was one, if ever such existed in humble life, "'and we are taught to believe as much. "'It does make them miserable, "'and on account of this affair neither you nor I are happy, "'but our oppressors are wretched. "'We, according to the impulse of our nature, "'wish to avenge that outrage. "'Let us be quiet. "'It is already in the course of avengement.' Those men would even now shrink out of existence if they were only assured of getting to heaven quietly. They are already invoking that obliviousness which will never come to their relief. Again, if the people took vengeance into their own hands, where would they begin, and where would they end? Would they denounce all Manchester and the whole country? No, no, the authors and perpetrators only. But how could they be got at? Would we descend to assassination? No, no, to indiscriminate massacre like that we had witnessed. Oh, no, no. Could we march against an army? We had no thought of doing so. We had no thought of anything save avenging in some way our slain and imprisoned fellow beings. Then, he said, we had best remain as we were. We should hear of a sensation in many parts which would forward our cause but the least outrage on ours would only strengthen the aggressors and create that plea of justification which alone could mitigate their remorse. They would exclaim, See, these are the men who came with peace on their lips. Behold now the violence of their hearts. What would they not have done had we not put them down? And so, claiming merit for what they had done, they would next arraign their captives, our friends, and have them executed. Such was the substance of the arguments of our friend John Kay. His reasons had at times some weight with me. On this occasion they were conclusive. Several persons from Middleton came to me whilst at Royton. They said that a number of men, representing themselves as deputies, had arrived and were at the Suffield Arms. On going there, I found persons from Manchester, Rochdale and Blackburn. My heart recoiled from one of the former, he was one of those whose atrocious conversation the day before had filled me with disgust. I told them briefly that I would not take any part in a delegate meeting to discuss the taking up of arms, that I saw not any prospect of succeeding, and if I did, they were not the men with whom I could act. I had sent for men whom I knew, but they came not. Strangers came whose faces I had never seen before, and I would not act with such, neither was it to be expected that I should. I then recapitulated the arguments of my friend John Kay, and advised them to return from whence they came, and they soon after did so. The day following there was another attempt to get up a delegate meeting. The Manchester people seemed determined to have one, but it met with the same fate, and the men, about half a dozen in number, separated without doing any business. Some days after, I was informed of the arrest of Joseph Healy at Lees. I began to expect something of the sort myself, and told our constable that if he got a warrant and would let me know, I would go with him any day or night to Manchester, and there should be no fuss. No one should be the wiser. He said he would take that course, should he have a warrant, and I attended to my business as usual. Isabella Banks continues her story of Peterloo in The Manchester Man. The town was, as it were, in a state of siege, and men of business, whether Tories or Radicals, 
alike felt the stoppage of trade and commerce in their pockets, whether they felt the cruelty and injustice to the injured in their hearts or not. But chiefly those who had friends wounded by design or accident in the melee were loud in their denunciation of the whole proceedings, and of these neither Mr Chadwick nor Mr Ashton was the least prominent, even though the one was paralysed and they were of contrary shades of politics, the former being what he himself called a staunch and true out-and-out Tory, the latter having a leaning towards liberal, not to say radical opinions, and at county elections voting with the Whigs. The stiff church and king man, whose sons had distinguished themselves in the army and navy, and whose son-in-law, Walmsley, might also be said to have distinguished himself in the local Manchester yeomanry, he who had been a member of John Shaw's club in the marketplace and called for his pea or his cue ball of punch, even before the aroma of Jacobitism ceased to flavour the delectable compound. And while yet John Shaw himself lived to draw his silver spoon from its particular pocket to concoct the same, and, inexorable autocrat that he was, could crack his whip in his pokey bar parlour in the ears of even noble customers who lingered after his imperative eight o'clock, gentlemen, eight o'clock, or summon his sturdy factotum Molly with mop and pail to drive thence with wetted feet those whom the whip had failed to influence, he who had stuck to the club even after John Shaw, Molly and the punch house itself had gone to the dust, he, Charles Chadwick, whose Toryism had grown with his growth, was foremost in condemning the proceedings of Peter Lou. In his own person, he had witnessed how the actual breakers of the peace were those commissioned to preserve it. In the wanton attack on himself, an unarmed, defenceless, disabled old man, he recognised the general characteristics of the whole affair and entered his protest against so lawless an exposition of the law. He was himself a peaceable man, a loyal subject, going quietly about his own business when Jabez intercepted, to his own hurt, the sabre destined for his grey head. Matthew Cooper, his tenant's father-in-law, was as peaceable and well-disposed, and if so, might not the bulk of the so-called rebels have been the same? In his gratitude to Jabez, he denounced the mounted yeoman who had sabred him as a drunken, bloodthirsty miscreant, though in the hurry, excitement and agitation attending his own withdrawal from the press by Mr Mabbott, he had failed to identify his pursuer with John Walmsley's dashing friend, and the exclamation of Ben Travis had not reached his ear in the confusion. Easy-going Mr Ashton also seemed transformed by the event. He had certainly lost the valuable services of his apprentice for some time to come, but that was the very least ingredient in the cup of his wrath. By faithful, intelligent service, by persevering industry, by a thousand little actions which had shown his interest in his employers and his devotion to his old friends, Jabez had won a place in his master's esteem and affection no other apprentice of any grade had ever attained. 
and now that Jabez had risked the dangers of the soldier-ridden streets to bear his beloved daughter to a place of safety, and had braved the storm of foot and horse and fire and steel to rescue his brother-in-law by endangering his own life or limbs, his admiration and gratitude rose to their highest, and in proportion his denunciation of an outrage which called for such a sacrifice was strong and vehement all the more that he sympathised with the objects of the meeting. When he and Simon Clegg, who had been drawn to the scene in his dinner hour with others, like moths to a candle, picked up his cavalry friend, Robert Hindley, from amongst the building materials and disengaged him from his dead horse, he could not refrain from telling the disabled warrior, with all a friend's frankness, that it served him right. Open expression of private opinion on the conduct of rulers was dangerous at that period, as may be supposed, but private opinion became public opinion, too strong and too universal to be put in fetters. Mr Tyus, the Times reporter, had been taken prisoner on the hustings, and it was imagined that only a one-sided account, forwarded by the magistracy in justification of their conduct, would reach London. But other intelligent reporters were at large. The garbled statements sent to the government press were confuted by the truth-telling narratives of Messrs Archibald Prentice and John Edward Taylor, which appeared the following day and roused the indignation of the realm. These statements being more than substantiated by the Times reporter on his liberation, national indignation rose to a ferment. This alarmed the Manchester magistrates, a meeting was hurriedly arranged to take place on Thursday the 19th, the third day from Peterloo, at the police station, thence adjourned to the Star Inn in Deansgate, and as though the meeting had been a public one, resolutions were passed thanking magistrates and soldiers for their services on the previous Monday. Then Manchester rose, as it were, en masse to vindicate its own honour and reject participation in a disgraceful deed. A declaration, says one historian, was issued protesting against the Star Inn resolutions, which in the course of two or three days received close upon 5,000 signatures, in obtaining which none were more active than Mr Ashton, and, despite his paralysis, Mr Chadwick. Old Mrs Clues talked her customers into signing, and Parson Brooks was not idle. Mr William Clough, whose old servant Matthew Cooper had been shot down at his own door, gave the tanners a holiday that they might influence their fellows. And Simon Clegg, Tom Hume and Nathaniel Bradshaw seemed ubiquitous. They went to work with such determined zeal. They did not feel thankful to the magistrates for their bloodshed on Peterloo Monday. Neither did the bulk of the inhabitants, and an energetic protest against the proceedings and representations of the magistracy was the result. To counteract this, the Prince Regent, through his mouthpiece, Lord Sidmouth, sent his thanks to the magistrates and the military leaders for their prompt, decisive and efficient measures. But this, instead of calming, lashed the public mind to frenzy. John Benjamin Smith attended the meeting that Mrs Banks describes in person. 
His account of the meeting points to the rift within the wealthier classes between those who supported the action of the authorities at St Peter's Fields and those who were appalled by it. When the particulars of this bloody tragedy became known, strong feelings of indignation were expressed all over the country. The Manchester magistrates, alarmed at the tone of public opinion in London, had a meeting hastily convened on the 19th of August at the police office, which was adjourned to the Star Inn, where resolutions were passed thanking the magistrates and the soldiers. I happened by accident to be present at the meeting. A young man with whom I was acquainted, a clerk in the office of the clerk to the magistrates, happened to meet me in the street on his way to the meeting, took me by the arm and said, Come with me. I asked where he was going, and when I learned, declined to go. He replied, Nonsense, you will hear what is going on. And so I somewhat reluctantly went with him to the Star Inn. On our arrival we found the room pretty full, and I took a seat. The chairman, Mr. Francis Phillips, rose and said, If there be any persons present who do not approve of the objects of this meeting, they are requested to withdraw. I thought he looked at me, and felt a little uncomfortable. He sat down again, and rose to repeat his request. I thought that, as I should know better what the object of the meeting was, after I had heard it explained, I would sit still, and so I remained to the end. After the meeting, I told some of my reform friends how I came to be present at the meeting, and they wished me to write out an account of the proceedings. I did so, and with a few alterations and the omission of names, it was inserted in Cowdroy's Gazette. This statement caused great alarm among those who got up the meeting to thank the magistrates, and they denounced it as a false statement, but another letter to Cowdroy's Gazette affirmed the truth of the account of the meeting to thank the magistrates, and threatened to make public the names of the speakers if its correctness was again called in question. The dispersion of a legally convened meeting by military force aroused a general indignation, and the smuggled passing of thanks to the magistrates, so dishonestly sent forth, occasioned an expression of public feeling and opinion such as had never been manifested in Manchester before. A declaration and protest against the Star in resolutions was immediately issued, stating that we are fully satisfied by personal observation on undoubted information that the meeting was perfectly peaceable, that no seditious or intemperate harangues were made there, that the riot act, if read at all, was read privately or without the knowledge of a great body of the meeting, and we feel it our bounden duty to protest against and to express our utter disapprobation of the unexpected and unnecessary violence by which the assembly was dispersed. We further declare that the meeting convened at the police office on the 19th of August for the purpose of thanking the magistrates, municipal officers, soldiers, etc., was strictly and exclusively private, and in order that the privacy might be more completely ensured was adjourned to the Star Inn, it is a matter of notoriety that no expression of dissent from the main object of the meeting was there permitted. We therefore deny that it had any claim to the title of a numerous and highly respectable meeting of the inhabitants of Manchester and Salford and their neighbourhood. In the course of three or four days, this protest received 4,800 signatures. By way of counteracting this energetic protest, on the 27th of August, Lord Sidmouth communicated to the Manchester magistrates, and to Major Trafford, and the military serving under him, 
the thanks of the Prince Regent for their prompt, decisive, and efficient measures for preservation of the public peace on August the 16th. Meanwhile, hundreds of persons wounded on that fatal day were enduring dreadful suffering. They were disabled from work, not daring to apply for parish relief, not even daring to apply for surgical aid, lest, in the arbitrary spirit of the time, their acknowledgment that they had received their wounds on St. Peter's Field might send them to prison, perhaps to the scaffold. A committee was formed, for the purpose of making a rigid enquiry into the cases of those who had been killed and wounded, and subscriptions were raised for their relief. After an inquiry of many successive weeks, the committee published the cases of eleven killed and five hundred and sixty wounded, of whom about a hundred and twenty were females. The Reverend W. Arch Hay, chairman of the bench of magistrates, was rewarded by being presented to the living of Rochdale worth two thousand pounds a year. Hunt and his companions were committed to Lancaster, and subsequently tried at York, where he was found guilty and sentenced to be imprisoned for two years and a half, and Johnson, Healy, and Bamford to one year's imprisonment. The bloody proceedings of Peterloo startled the whole nation. Meetings were held everywhere, denouncing them in the strongest terms. Sir Francis Burdett addressed a letter to the electors of Westminster, expressing his shame, grief, and indignation at the proceedings, and was prosecuted by the Attorney-General for libel, and was fined £2,000, and imprisoned for three months. Lord Fitzwilliam, for attending a public meeting to express disapprobation at the means by which the meeting at Peterloo was dispersed, was dismissed from his office as Lord Lieutenant of Yorkshire. These proceedings produced a deep impression on the minds of thoughtful men, who began to think we were on the brink of despotism, and that the time had arrived when the country should be no longer ruled by landowners and borough-mongers, but by representatives chosen by the people. The Star in Resolution read in full. At a numerous and highly respectable meeting of the inhabitants of Manchester and Salford and their neighbourhood, held here this day, to take into consideration the best mode of expressing their gratitude to the magistrates, the borough reeves and constables, the special constables, and the several military bodies engaged in securing the public safety, and particularly in suppressing the disorderly and tumultuous assemblage on Monday last. James Briley, Esquire, Senior Churchwarden, in the chair. It was resolved unanimously, first, that the inhabitants of Manchester and Salford, whilst they feel themselves bound to preserve the inestimable privilege of petitioning for the redress of grievances, will never fail to express their abhorrence of, and to resist the tumultuous assemblage within these towns of persons from distant places, and especially when marching under banners and accompanied by symbols and other demonstrations of rebellion, perfectly foreign from the exercise of the right of petitioning. Second, that the inhabitants of Manchester and Salford cannot delay the expression of their grateful acknowledgments to the magistrates of the counties Palatine of Lancaster and Chester, who have so ably and so vigilantly exerted themselves to ensure the safety of these towns and the neighbourhood, and especially for their conduct with respect to the tumultuous assemblage on Monday last, which was chiefly composed of persons from a distance. Third, 
that the thanks of the public are eminently due to Major General Sir John Bing for the solicitude he manifested and the able arrangements he has made for the general safety of the district. Fourth, that the warmest gratitude is especially due to the Borough Reeves and Constables of Manchester and Salford for the great ability, vigilance and activity with which they have discharged their anxious, important and laborious duties during the existing disturbances, as well as upon all occasions. Fifth, that the especial thanks of this meeting be given to Lieutenant Colonel Lestrange, the officer in command on Monday, for his great exertions, as well as his judicious arrangements to secure the peace of these towns. Sixth, that the grateful impression of this meeting be respectfully communicated to Lieutenant Colonel Dalrymple of the 15th Hussars, to Lieutenant Colonel Tonin of the 31st Regiment of Foot, to Lieutenant Colonel MacGregor of the 88th Regiment of Foot, to Major Dineley of the Royal Horse Artillery, and to the officers and men of their respective corps, for the very important services rendered by them on this occasion. 7. That the public at large will ever remember with gratitude the patriotic offer recently made by Sir John Fleming Lester of the services of his corps, the Prince Regent's Regiment of Cheshire Yeomanry Cavalry, and the zeal and alacrity with which Lieutenant Colonel Townsend and the officers and men under his command came forward for the third time and afforded such essential aid towards the protection of these towns. 8. That the grateful thanks of the inhabitants of these towns be presented to Major Trafford and the Corps of Manchester and Salford Yeomanry Cavalry for the effectual assistance they have rendered to the civil power in the discharge of their arduous and important duties. Ninth, that this meeting returns its best thanks to the special constables of Manchester and Salford and the neighbouring towns for the extraordinary spirit and perseverance they have evinced in the discharge of their duty during this alarming crisis. Tenth, that James Norris Esquire, one of the magistrates, and Edward Clayton Esquire, the Borough Reeve of Manchester, be deputed to wait upon the Lord Lieutenant of the County to communicate the preceding resolutions, and to thank his Lordship for his early and watchful attention to the peace of this county. Eleventh, that a deputation consisting of the Chairman, Thomas Peel, Esquire, John Barton, Esquire, Richard Johnson, Daventry, Ashworth, Esquire, John Douglas, Esquire, and Thomas Scholes, Withington, Esquire, be appointed to convey the expressions of gratitude contained in the preceding resolutions to the several gentlemen to whom they are voted. Twelfth, that the resolutions of this meeting be signed by the Chairman and published. James Brierley, Chairman. That the sincere thanks of this meeting be given to James Brierley, Esquire, for his very able and approved conduct in the chair. John Douglas. Without delay, John Edward Taylor, a moderate reformer and journalist, who would later become founding editor of the Manchester Guardian, after the Observer had been forced out of business, published a declaration and protest against the very idea that the Star Inn resolution represented the views of the inhabitants of the town. Declaration and Protest We, the undersigned, 
without individually approving of the manner in which the meeting held at St. Peter's on Monday the 16th of August was constituted, hereby declare that we are fully satisfied by personal observation or undoubted information that it was perfectly peaceable, that no seditious or intemperate harangues were made there, that the Riot Act, if read at all, was read privately or without the knowledge of the great body of the meeting, and that we feel it our bounden duty to protest against and to express our utter disapprobation of the unexpected and unnecessary violence by which the assembly was dispersed. We further declare that the meeting convened at the police office on Thursday the 19th instant for the purpose of thanking the magistrates, municipal officers, soldiery, etc., was strictly and exclusively private, and, in order that its privacy might be more completely ensured, was adjourned to the Star Inn. It is a matter of notoriety that no expression of dissent from the main object of the meeting was there permitted. We therefore deny that it had any claim to the title of a numerous and highly respectable meeting of the inhabitants of Manchester and Salford and their neighbourhood, and we hereby invite those who have presumed so to style it to join with us in giving to the inhabitants at large of Manchester and Salford and their neighbourhood a public opportunity of expressing their real opinions upon the subject. Signed by 530 persons. The week following the Peterloo massacre had been a difficult one for the authorities. Accounts of the massacre had appeared in London newspapers, and the Home Secretary, Lord Sidmouth, was receiving confusing and contradictory reports of the events of the day. Magistrate James Norris had written to the Home Secretary on the night of the 16th of his fears that the town in particular parts and the adjoining county threatens to be in a night or two in a complete insurrectionary state. Magistrate Hay travelled to London on the 19th to explain matters to the Cabinet, but the Home Secretary was dissatisfied with his account Lord Sidmouth, it should be noted, had been consistent in discouraging military intervention at public meetings unless there was clear evidence of rioting. He favoured other, less public methods of suppressing the threat of disorder. Nevertheless, he stood by the Borough Reeve and Magistrates, and on the 21st of August he wrote to the Earl of Derby, Lord Lieutenant of Lancashire, asking him to convey his thanks to the local authorities. My Lord, Having laid before the Prince Regent the accounts transmitted to me from Manchester of the proceedings at that place on Monday last, I have been commanded by His Royal Highness to request that you will express to the magistrates of the County Palatine of Lancaster, who attended on that day, the great satisfaction derived by His Royal Highness from their prompt, decisive, and efficient measures for the preservation of the public tranquillity, and likewise that your lordship will signify to Major Trafford His Royal Highness's high approbation of the support and assistance to the civil power afforded upon that occasion by himself and the officers, non-commissioned officers and privates of the corps serving under his command. I have the honour to be, my lord, your Lordship's most obedient humble servant, Sidmouth. So God bless Henry Hunt, me boys, with Henry Hunt we'll go. 
We'll mount the cap of liberty in spite of Nady Joe.